Outside the Box. Hello and welcome to July's Outside the Box. I am joined as ever by Jen. Oh, hello. <laughs> and Mickey. Word. I think I've run out of silly greetings. You, I need to refresh You must them. have done by now. <laughs> I literally winced before you did it in anticipation. <laughs> so we've got a lot of stuff to get through. But I thought we might start with three, yeah, three exciting news stories regarding television. I think we will be varying degrees of excited between us. <laughs> I'm very excited about one of them, like pants-shittingly excited about another and then one I'm really ambivalent about. But let's make a start with the trailer has dropped for season three, series three, however you want to say it, of Succession. Have you seen it, Mickey? I haven't seen it yet. I was meant to watch it before we chatted because I am super excited and I've had it open in my computer for ages, but my computer has decided it doesn't want to play video, so I haven't been able to watch it. God, why don't I just buy a new laptop, Mickey? It's true. I should just throw this one out the window so it learns a lesson. I mean, it's going to be quite hard for you to understand why I now uh, say, whoa, Nelly, quite so much. <laughs> but you should watch it. The interesting thing is it appears to be shiv heavy the trailer really shiv heavy which i have no complaints about especially except for the fact that succession the plan was to have one child be dominant in each series and shiv's series was kind of last series so i was actually looking forward to roman's series maybe it will be roman series but you just don't get it in that trailer but it was pretty exciting looking I mean, it wouldn't be unlike Succession to do a bit of a rug pull there, Hannah, would it? No, it wouldn't. We have some other Succession news, which I don't know if you want to drop in here, Mickey. We're going to be talking to one of the writers slash exec producers on Succession, Georgia Pritchett, about being a writer, being a woman writer and still a very male-dominated writer's room, and also about her book, My Mess is a Bit of a Life, and that is coming VV soon. Yeah, no doubt I will manage to cram a couple of succession questions in there. She also writes for Veep. This is like Hannah's best interview ever. Apart from <laughs> the one and Hannah's just going to be screaming in the background, running around with <laughs> yeah, a, I'm just with a t-shirt mute. over her head again. <laughs> I'll mute the whole way through it. I'm Can not I making... ask, is this, is this news the one that you're pant-shittingly excited about? Yeah, I was, okay. I was pant-shittingly excited about that trailer. I just... I was talking about this with my friend, uh, the TV reviewer, Paul Kirkley, and we were saying the irony is the thing we're most looking forward to after a year of sitting in and watching television is series three of <laughs> Succession. When does it actually happen? It says at the bottom, coming this autumn. So my guess okay. is probably October. Okay. That... Oh, October's a good month then. Is that in the UK or is that in the US? Well, it will go on uh, it, simultaneously. Uh, Big Drama Night on HBO in America is traditionally a Sunday, and we oh, usually so like the Mayor of East Town, we get it like on the Monday. The... On the Monday, yeah. So the thing I'm also very, very, very excited about is the trailer for The Many Saints of Newark, which is technically a film, although it is a film that. It will appear on HBO Max in America, which means you will be able to watch it at home and cinemas here, which is actually how In the Heights was released in America. I have no problem with that because I have no problem with watching it on a big screen because it looks really fucking exciting. For those who don't know, The Many Saints of Newark is David Chase's 
prequel to The Sopranos following the stories of Tony Soprano as a youngster, his dad, Johnny Boy Soprano, and Christopher Moltisanti's dad, Dickie Moltisanti, who is being tracked down by a baddie let's use that word because that's how um, i mean who is a baddie and everyone is to be safe Anna, let's say I'm, baddie. Con- I'm concerned about your moral compass played by leslie odem jr which is quite exciting and also the trailer features uh vera for familiar familiar say it again jen Formatia. Yeah, one of those apologies, Vera, uh, who is playing Livia Soprano and she has been working on those facial gestures and it is amazing. I've got one question for you, Dunleavy, and that is, I sorted out a succession interview. Where the fuck is my Sopranos interview, Uh, mate? (laughs) Yeah, I tried so hard last year to get Leslie Odom Jr. and it just didn't, it just didn't pan out. We couldn't make a date work. I was at a high state of excitement for about six weeks, but then we just couldn't make a date work. Mickey, how excited are you? I've watched The Sopranos all the way through eight times. I am a giddy tipper. Eight times. I thought it was three. I love it. No, eight, You've been busy in lockdown. Oh, no, I'd watched it seven. I watched it once more in lockdown, but I'd already seen it seven times. I love it. It's such classic television. And even though I kind of, we've talked about this before, I thought maybe I'd been, I'd done with the gangster genre because it is so, like, wincingly violent. Apparently, absolutely not. And I am very, very excited. My pants are now full of shit for this one. Excited about succession, but this is my pants-shittingly excited moment. Can I ask you a question? Because I feel really jealous of both of you of your pants full of excrement right now. (laughs) I have never seen succession. I've never seen The Sopranos. These are both things that I've been meaning to watch. I know that you're both big fans of of both of these things. Mm-hmm. If I were to, where, where should I start? Where should I start? Series one, episode one of either of them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like it's, I think Succession, Sopranos, at least you know it's a done deal. You can watch the whole thing. It's a real experience in that way. But Succession is already gearing up to be as good. I would say if you watch Succession, then you can take part in real live excitement yeah. about it rather than that thing where you watch a series that's actually five or six years old and you've got no one to turn around and say, <laughs> oh my God, at a point that everyone else was saying, oh my God, five years ago. Do you know in what, fairness, though? Jen, you can call, call me at any point about <laughs> the Sopranos. <laughs> Thank you. I watched The Wire about 10 years after everyone else and I was like, <laughs> I've just uh, started watching a thing that you might have heard of. It. No, it wasn't like that. Uh, basically, I, all of my friends were just like, I'm so jealous of you. I'm so jealous of you that you're watching this for the first time. Yes, yes. What, what else is interesting, briefly, I'll just say, and also very exciting about The Many Saints of Newark, is it is set at a really interesting point in Newark or New Jersey or even American history. It's set around the times of the Newark riots linked to the death of Martin Luther King. Riots happened all over America. But in Newark in particular, that was one of those places where it actually changed the landscape of Newark. It caused a lot of white flight. So it is about a sort of a city in flux, which I think makes it historically interesting as well. Fingers crossed it will be. I've probably seen The Sopranos maybe five times, maybe not as many as you, but a lot, a lot of times. And it's worth noting, so Hannah sent me a WhatsApp of the trailer and just said, uh, immediate feedback required. And I was like, oh my God, and I watched the trailer. I was like, 
that kid they've got as a young Tony, he has nailed Gandolfini's expressions. That is incredible. And Hannah just wrote back, yeah, it's his son. And I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And oh. it's Michael Gandolfini playing uh, Tony Soprano. Well, is it Jen, one Jen from... will know who Michael the Gandolfini Deuce. is. He's in The Deuce, yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, I had a terrible day in Newark once, just FYI. I have <laughs> also been to Newark and, and I, I largely... Spent most of my time trying to get out of Newark. Yeah, me too. Uh, but on yeah, a bicycle. It, yeah, well, I wasn't. I was well. just trying to find a taxi that would take us with as much luggage as we had, and it wasn't great. Yeah. In fairness, Tony Soprano had a quite a few bad days in Newark as well. Number three of the exciting news things, so this is the thing that I think ambivalent would even be strong word for me, is that filming has just started on, and just like that which is the Sex and the City reboot, starring three of the original four main characters. Samantha, who's played by Kim Cattrall, will not return. The other three actresses will just rearrange these words into a sentence. Dead, flogging, horse. That would be my feelings. How about you two? I know you two are bigger fans of the original than I was so you might be excited I've got thoughts I'm not excited to be honest I don't um I, I I'm not pants shittingly or otherwise excited about it <laughs> and I kind of agree a little bit about the the dead horse and I think it's a shame to do it without Samantha but I think what I would say is and I know this is not the reason why you're not excited about it Hannah but what I would say is I think there is just like some really fucking horrible misogyny attached to some of the criticisms of it. And I would also say that, yes, flogging a dead horse to some extent, but also we do talk about like roles for older actresses, et cetera, et cetera. And like, it's probably quite nice to to let some middle-aged actresses talk about relationships and sex and stuff Mm because it still happens, doesn't it? Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, Jen's kind of summed up my thoughts on it as well. I didn't watch the second film. I kind of, I it loved the series. I absolutely loved the series. And again, I've rewatched that a lot. And it's kind of familiar territory for me, like when I revisit the Jilly Cooper books. Is there a lot wrong with it? Absolutely. Does it still feel like a bit of a hug? And I know those characters and kind of know their flaws. That too. And Jen's right. I'm not excited. I don't even think I'll watch it. But I'll, I'll probably have a nose. But the thought of a female-led programme that is led by women in their 50s, early 60s, I think that's cracking. Who knows when that's going to be on the telly? Maybe a year? I don't know. I will watch it. Like, to be clear, I absolutely will watch it. Also, I've got a lot of fucking time to sit at home watching telly. Uh, So, yeah, I will watch it, but I'm I'm not excited about it. One more thing that's coming up, just to mention, because we'll probably review it next week, and you will probably hear it in an advert at the top of this very episode, is Series 2 of Ashling B's rather excellent sitcom, This Way Up, starts on Channel 4, I believe, this week. Tonight, as we record on Wednesday. Okay, great. Well, then somebody can have watched it all, because I believe it's all going up on the... um, Actually, just listen to the advert. I say it all in that. (laughs) First series was cracking. Loved it. So, things that we can talk about this month. Mickey and I have caught up with The Nevers. We were a tiny bit behind with that, but we have caught up. Jen and I have been watching Epstein's Shadow, which is the documentary about Jelaine Maxwell on Sky. I've got some other documentary news, not stuff that I've watched, but stuff that other people might be interested in. And Mick and I have watched... 
Lupa on Netflix. And I believe that you guys have seen some other stuff as well. Yes, I have seen Together on that there BBC. I've seen Sex Life on Netflix. Hold on to your Do you have to pronounce the slash? Do you have to like enunciate the slash? I don't know. Sex slash life. Sex slash life. Ooh, sex slash. Isn't that what Double (laughs) Trump I mean, that probably does happen in it, to be fair. So, (laughs) Oh, we've just been demonetised. Sex slash. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's start with the nevers. Jen, you haven't watched it, I'm guessing. No, I haven't. I'm but kind I'm of surprised that you haven't because it's Josh Whedon. Um, yes. Who, of course, uh, yes. is famous for a number of things. <laughs> uh, one of which is Buffet. Now, I don't know. Buffet. About Buffet. Buffet. <laughs> one of which is. Buffet the vampire feeder. <laughs> one of which is Buffy. Now, I don't know how much we want to go into the accusations around Josh Whedon. Because, uh, to be honest, I find that not particularly helpful in reviewing television. I I think that if you want to talk about the politics around that person, you can do that outside of the review in a separate article. I don't think it's particularly helpful to put it in a review. But Mickey, if you've got things to say on that front, feel free. I kind of agree with you to an extent. But I think because Joss Whedon does all this like, I'm a feminist, look Mm. at my strong female Mm. characters. And the other thing was on the Justice League, which is all about fairness and fighting. I'm like, yeah, 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 Mm. you can fuck off, mate. Sounds like he's a bit of a dick. They're the accusations. Massive bellend. Yeah. So HBO series, six episodes, which is technically half a series. The next four episodes, which make up the second part of the series, are coming in 2022. It is set in London in the last years of the 19th century. Uh, An object appears in the sky over London and these tiny little sort of sparks rain down from it. And the people they hit, these sparks hit, are left with what I can only describe as magical powers, although in this they call it a turn. Everybody immediately forgets that this thing has happened. Mrs. True, the mysterious Mrs. True, helps run an orphanage for these people who are called the Touched. They are under threat in many ways from a number of angles, sort of politically, crime world. There's a murderess. These powers have predominantly been given to women because, as Mickey just pointed out, Josh Whedon likes to think He's that a he is a feminist. Yes, there is a lot going on to the degree that I would say it is overstuffed. There is a lot. There is too much going on. There are whole sections of this that it could lose and then invest more time in other sections of it. And it would be better. I also find it quite derivative in parts, obviously. There are a number of British character actors just having a lovely time in there. Nick Frost, Pip Torrens, Ruth Sheen, Elizabeth Barrington, the American Dennis O'Hare as well. They're all putting in great performances. I think there are also some very hackneyed performances in the middle of there. I don't like what James Norton's doing. I don't like what Amy Manchin is doing. As They're having such a lovely time though, Hannah. (laughs) Amy Manchin is the big bad, which is exceptionally derivative of Helena in Orphan Black and just not as good. It's funny, but it's funny in a way that it kind of knows it's funny and therefore some of its jokes really sound like jokes and they fall flat and you can almost hear the clang. I didn't laugh half as much as it was asking me to laugh. I mean, it's got a steampunk aesthetic, which is attractive, but also very overdone by this point. 
It's got some real shoehorned in feminism. The character Harriet just constantly moaning about what she's not allowed to do as a woman becomes quite exhausting in parts. And that's as somebody who is clearly into history and feminism. It's diverse, good, but I find it really talks the talk quite a lot in terms of sexual diversity. It really does talk the talk. Got a lot of characters who are bisexual or openly gay but nonetheless you still don't see none of that the only time you see anything that's vaguely sexual is old-fashioned women's tits Mm -hmm. and you know missionary positioned sex maybe it sounds like i'm being negative and possibly i am i had a nice time watching it but i find a huge chunk of it is on the shoulders of laura donnelly the irish actress who is fantastic in it genuinely so watchable that I would probably watch more because of her rather than everything else that I've just described. Mickey. I had a lovely time, but it's very silly. It is very silly. But, I mean, I'd recommend it. Just don't expect to, like, come away going, wow, that was some extraordinary telly. <laughs> it's not Chernobyl, do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. It's fun, though. It's fun. And that knowing humour, you're right, it is, you can see the setup before the punchline hits. It's very Buffy, though. I reckon I would love to rewatch Buffy. It's on my list of rewatchings, but I think I would be like, oh yeah, that's very nineties humor, and I think it's 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 the same in the Nevers. But I, I had a nice time. All of my favorite drama series are hilariously funny at the same time, to varying degrees. But you know, we were just talking about The Sopranos. Sopranos is hilarious. So Dead- funny. Deadwood is hilarious. The Leftovers was dry as fuck and really, really funny. Buffy was very, very funny. This, it just, it feels like it's working too hard to make me laugh. And therefore, it oddly feels slightly dated. I would say everything that Laura Donnelly delivers, though, whether I could see it coming or not, I just think, I'm just like, yeah, class act. She's so good. So good. Yeah. I think you might like it, Jen, actually. Okay. It's clearly made by the same person that makes Buffy. Like, it has all... It ticks all of those boxes. It's a long time since I've seen Buffy. And again, it was on my list of things to re-watch over lockdown, but I I didn't get around to it. And I'm a bit worried about re-watching Buffy. Oh, no, don't be. Some of the effects look really like, oh, God. And some of the... What do they call it when they re-enhance it? When they... Come on, Hannah, you know the word. Remastered. 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 Some of the remastered stuff they've done quite badly. Mm. But I didn't come to Buffy till I was in my 30s and Mm. I still loved it. If that's any kind of... I think you'll still really love it. There's loads to love. Did you not watch it on a Tuesday night on BBC Two? No, I did not. I used to watch it with my mum and my brother after Home and Away. Lovely times. And have me dinner with my parents on a Tuesday night and watch it with my dad and my brother. We loved Buffy in our house. Loved it. Moving on. Documentary. Epstein Shadow, colon, Jelaine Maxwell. No slash, Mickey, just a colon. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. The money's back. Uh, Three-part documentary on Sky and Now TV. You can watch it all now. Directed by Barbara Shearer. I think it's important to mention that, not because you might know who she is, particularly but because everything i'm going to say next it was directed by a woman it is a co-british and american production about the life of the youngest child of robert maxwell who went from being 
the spoiled youngest child to the enabler-in-chief of paedophile Jeffrey Epstein. Please don't write to me and tell me he's a heapophile. I've no interest in that. Anyway, moving on. It's got a pretty poor standard of talking head as documentaries go and relies very, very heavy on Lady Victoria Harvey, who really doesn't have much... Hervey, who really doesn't have much insight. And for me, it skirts uncomfortably close to asking us to have compassion for her. And therein lies a paradox, because they have made a documentary that somehow is asking me to sympathise with Ghislaine Maxwell, but is also potentially prejudicing her trial, which has not happened yet. So I don't really understand what the point of it is. Jen? Sorry, can I just ask a question about what you just said about prejudicing the prejudicing yeah. the trial, Hannah? Would they be allowed to make that and put it out if that was the case? Surely that just would not go on the telly. Well, they have a different set of rules about prejudicing yeah. Charles right, in America. Okay. It certainly wouldn't happen here. Yeah, okay, I was going to ask you. about that. I was going to, well, I was going to mention the fact that um, I I understand that the American legal system is different in that respect, but I don't understand fully how. It's mad. It just is. It's so confusing. Yeah, and like, I know all their like libel laws and stuff are, are, are different as well, which is also not irrelevant in this context. I agree with you, Hannah. I think the the talking heads are pretty poor, poor quality. And also, there is someone I don't know. Oh gosh, I've literally just watched it. What's her name? The writer, the the woman who knew her at Oxford, who's the writer. Oh, I can't remember. I watched it about a fortnight ago now, Jen. Sorry. Anyway, her, if you, <laughs> if you watch it. I found it to be extremely problematic. Extremely. Where do I begin? Basically, everything she says is speculation. There's absolutely no level of fact or insight. It's literally just speculation. She's like... Well, of course, because her dad was a bellend, she's absolutely accustomed to dealing with bellends, and that's why she's gone on mm. and gotten involved with a bellend, is basically the argument. And it's just like, you, I don't think you actually really know anything about her or her life beyond what like I could probably find out with a half-hour Google. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like, okay, you knew her at Oxford, but like, it it seems to me that your level of insight is particularly like low and barrel scraping frankly everything she says is speculation mm. and yeah. which is not how you make a fucking documentary i also found and weirdly i found that because of the and i have only watched two episodes so haven't quite gotten to the punchline yet guys but i found certainly in the first episode because there was such a low standard of evidence presented, I actually did feel more sympathy towards her, and yet I don't think that's what they were trying to achieve. Okay, that's interesting. Because I think that, you know, the idea that she's... Like, it really does go hard in the first episode on how tough it is to yeah. be, like, the, Robert Maxwell's an, daughter. the incredibly rich daughter yeah. of an incredibly rich man. And they're like... I mean, obviously, Robert Maxwell was a difficult human being and a not pleasant human being and all of mm. that. But they kind of, like kept saying well it's even worse if your dad's like you know actually robert maxwell and really famous and i think is it really in perspective mm. because then you've got good shit that weighs it out is that any different from having a working class dad who comes home 
and is a monster in his house, which a lot of people will be putting up with, but won't have the benefit of being able to go and ride their pony to get over it. So there's an element of a lack of understanding of class dynamics in this that gets on my nerves, definitely. And you're right. Maybe they don't realise that what that does looks like to me is asking for sympathy when they're saying that. Maybe you are right. Yeah, I I, I genuinely don't think it's what they were going for, but I found myself feeling more... as the second episode goes on, I have to say I felt distinctly less sympathy towards her because, you know, it's sort of ratcheting up, like, a level to where the the bad shit is going on. But, like, the first episode, yeah, I did feel more compassion towards her. And I just I just think it's very, very badly made. There's just, like, just some of the stuff they say is just fucking ridiculous. Like, that was really her lowest step when her dad was found, like, you know, drowned off his yacht, blah, blah, blah. Mm. It's just like, no fucking shit, Sherlock. That is genuinely quite a traumatic life incident. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't feel like I need Lady Victoria Hervey to, or whoever it was to tell me that that's, that's bad. Like, what, what the fuck? Like, it's just, yeah, I, I think it's really, really base level stuff, to be honest. There is a victim that they talk to in this, which is worth pointing yes. out. And when yeah. I criticise Talking Heads, I obviously am not criticising her. She is entitled to say what the fuck she likes. But yeah, I find the whole thing a little bit difficult because my English law brain just rebels against this idea that you can put out a documentary in which you basically lay out what you believe to be evidence of whether someone is guilty while they are still in prison. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, that's, that 100%. Okay, so that's available to watch on Sky if you're interested. <laughs> some more, some more documentaries. See you. I really want to see that. <laughs> uh, some more documentaries. If you read the newsletter when I do it, you will know that I was talking about true crime recently because I've been listening to the podcast West Cork and I wanted to commend it for doing things well. That is about the murder of Sophie Toscane de Plantier, which is Ireland's most famous unsolved murder. Two documentaries about it out this month. I've watched neither of them, just oh. FYI, uh, because I don't need to because I've listened to a podcast about it. One is called Murder in West Cork, which is on Netflix. The second is called Murder at the Cottage. That one is by Jim Sheridan, who I don't know if that name will ring a bell. Jim Sheridan is probably Ireland's best film director. I say probably, I mean, arguably, Ireland's best film director. He made In America, The Boxer, In the Name of the Father. Oh, um, yeah, okay. Yeah, like, definitely very good at his job. If you can want to watch one, I would recommend you go with the Oscar-nominated director rather than the Netflix one, but I've not watched either. What I will say is I have read that Jim Sheridan's has caused a bit of a to-do because the family felt he was too sympathetic to the guy who is accused of doing it. And that would be precisely one of the points I would make about why making true crime documentaries is, you know, something you really need to get families on board with. But nonetheless, I'm sure his is still probably of a better quality. Another documentary came out yesterday, I believe, on Netflix, is How to Become a Tyrant, which is voiced by incredibly gravelly-voiced and deadpan Peter Dinklage, I was thinking people probably wouldn't recognise his voice because everyone is familiar with him sounding like Tyrion Lannister, which is about tyrants, basically, through history and is represented 
via cartoons and humour, which is something it's getting a lot of praise for and people saying more history should be represented like this. I don't know that I agree with that. Sorry? Horrible histories. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily agree that most people need cartoons in order to watch (laughs) history. To be honest, it seems slightly offensive. I haven't actually watched it yet, mostly because it's had to go in first necessarily with Hitler by the way it is. And Hitler is actually the least interesting of all the people that it's talking about in many ways, because we already know loads of it. That's not a recommendation. It's just a there it is if you want to watch it. And finally, Ken Burns's Hemingway documentary is now on the BBC iPlayer. I think it's up to six episodes now. I have been putting off watching this because Ernest Hemingway, although a brilliant writer and someone who I could read his books and have read his books over and over again, incredibly problematic personality that only gets worse the older you get, I find. A friend of mine who is probably the biggest Hemingway fan I know. I asked him if he'd watched it and he said yes and I asked him what it was like and his response was a wrinkled nose. So take that how you will. I might watch it just for the cats. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I just, I feel like Hemingway was a man of his time and therefore I'm not entirely sure what a reinvestigation of him now can particularly tell us especially given ken burns much as i fucking love ken burns burns tends to put a somewhat all sides approach which is good but i feel like ernest hemingway probably has more detractors than he has supporters by this point in history not for his work but for his let's call it personality i was gonna say shenanigans (laughs) (laughs) okay let's take a break and then mickey you're gonna tell us about together Welcome back. Did you enjoy your break? And by that, that tiny sip of water you took, Jen, and that cough <laughs> you had, Mickey. Yeah, I, I needed to do that. Can you tell us about Together, please? I can indeed. I mean, I could keep this really short. Watch it. That's <laughs> what I would say about Together. Together is Dennis Kelly's two-hander for BBC Two, and it's a film rather than a series. But I figured that given it is for the BBC, it makes it outside the box worthy. It stars the fucking dream team of Sharon Horgan and James McAvoy, and it is fast-paced, bitingly funny, searingly angry, astonishingly moving, claustrophobic, and at times painful to watch stuff, and dark. Man, is it dark. Horgan and McAvoy, who are both as incredible as you'd expect, are a warring couple thrown together in lockdown. They've only stuck the relationship out because of the kid they shouldn't have had, Arthur, who silently watches their fights from the sidelines, and that in itself is quite tear-jerking, actually. But now, they're actually having to spend time in each other's company, and it is not going well. Their verbal sparring is relentless and bitter, and really very funny at times. And director Stephen Dolger uses the camera, uses the viewer, almost as a marriage counsellor, and we listen to each of them spit venom about the other, either in chaotic duologues where they're talking over each other or in monologues delivered straight down the lens. That means it is often uncomfortable viewing and made actually even more uncomfortable by the fact there are laugh out loud moments which distract you from just how toxic this relationship is. And quite key, it also distracts them. Those sparks when she and he still make each other laugh when actually a rehash of an old argument reveals that they often agree more than they differ, serve as fresh glue when they should just be ripping the plaster off that relationship and splitting up. 
And then something happens, something that so many, far too many people have been through over the last year. Tragedy, grief. She's mum, I keep saying she and he, they don't have names, they are known as she and he. She's mum becomes a victim of the government's care home disaster. And I, I cannot overstate how beautifully, how compassionately, how fiercely Together handles this. After a straightforward but gut-punching explanation of what exponential growth actually means, she says... So I can't escape the feeling that mum didn't die. She was killed by stupidity, by dumb fuckery. And she's right. It is such a hit home moment. So the only bit that actually made me pull a face, do a nose wrinkle, is the ending. And I won't spoil it because you really should watch it. And it is on iPlayer. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that Dennis Kelly wrote that for Sharon Horgan. Well, they uh, worked together on Pulling, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, he goes to say because he wrote, he wrote Pulling with her. And sometimes when someone's got somebody in mind that they know will do the stuff they ask of them and, you know, can do a certain thing, it, it just makes things all the richer, doesn't it? I don't want to detract from his writing, and I don't know whether this is fact, but it felt to me like he'd sketched out in, in a lot of detail where he wanted it to go, and then he has trusted Horgan and McAvoy to make those words their own, if that makes sense. I mean, they are phenomenal actors, but it is so naturalistic. It feels like no one's put those words in their mouths. It feels like it's coming from them. Interesting. Jen, tell us about sex slash life. Right, well, I mean... There's the advertising gun again. Sex slash. I'll keep this relatively brief. So, sex slash life stars Sarah Shahi as, and this is an incredible name they've given her, Billy Connolly, who is <laughs> Connelly rather than Connolly, but um, still, you know, Billy Connolly. The big um, Yeah. So she is a frustrated and bored housewife of a big financial guy, Cooper Connolly. I mean... I've told you all, all you need to know, really, haven't I? But yeah, <laughs> basically she's got two kids and they live in rich as fuck Connecticut and he commutes into uh, into work in the big oh, bad hang city. hang on, Jen. Hannah's rushed off to watch it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> he commutes into work for, I don't know, fucking Goldman Sachs or whatever in, in Manhattan. <laughs> and he never wants to have sex with her. They've got two kids, one of which is... Still breastfeeding, so I assume I'm supposed to be, like, under the age of one. And I have to say, as someone who recently did have a child, her experience could not have been more alien to me. Basically, she's frustrated because her husband doesn't want to have sex with her anymore, sees her as a sort of more maternal kind of role, and she is just gagging for a good banging. Shagging, uh, surely. Gagging for a shagging. Yeah, good point. You're so, welcome. She is haunted by the memory of her absolutely toxic, horrible, terrible ex-boyfriend, Brad, played by Adam Demos. Don't know how you say it. And she inexplicably ends up seeing him again and being torn between whether or not she should ditch her comfortable, lovely, happy lifestyle to go and get back together with a man who I can only describe as a complete and utter fucking tosspot. Anyway, <laughs> what can I say about this? I was interested in it because the creator is a woman, Stacey Rooksayer. I think that's how you say it. It was sold to me as kind of like a feminist thing. There's loads of shagging in it. Mostly it's the same kind of thing. It's it's just Sarah Shahi getting her baps out constantly for 
just again and again and again and you do see one wang in it and it's massive it's just uh there's a spoiler for you there gosh it's fucking oh awful. hannah's rushed off again <laughs> it's it's so bad it's offensively bad i watched it to its conclusion and I don't know why. That's the wang. The, to your conclusion. <laughs> no, really, it wasn't. It, not like that. I was waiting for, because I had seen it described as like, you know, having a feminist message. And I suppose a feminist message is that um, women are sexual beings. And even if they have kids, they continue to be sexual beings. Cool. I'm with you. Except that you've made the characters, the plot, like literally every other aspect of it completely unfeminist. The two men that she's torn between are both absolutely toxic assholes, And yet, and yet she is torn between them. And I'm not going to spoil it. Watch it if you really want for the <laughs> wang, if nothing else. I've got a question then, Jen. This has been in the, the carousel of loads of people are watching this for mm. ages on Netflix. Are people watching it because it's really funnily stupid in there in that case, or do you think you're just not the audience? No, I think I am the audience. I think it is meant for probably women around my age, probably people who've had kids as well, or or maybe it's maybe it's actually made for men. I don't know. There are a lot of tits in it. I don't know. I I, I thought it was supposed to be for me. It wasn't for me. <laughs> I, I don't know what the intention was, right. but it, it wasn't for me. I didn't find it remotely feminist. I found it pretty insulting and a really, really toxic message. In that case, I might segue briefly into something else that's on, which is Please The Handmaid's do. Tale, Series 4, which is meant for us, for women who think that women, you know, need rights and all of that. I haven't really got a lot to say about it. I did watch, I would say, a good half, because I know that it, it had a change that they were selling to you. But even so, I just find it, it's just misery. At what point is putting women in these horrific situations too much? Is it guilty of the thing it's trying to criticise? And I find it quite exhausting. And I also find Elizabeth Moss's performance now unbelievably showy. What it reminds me of now is Kevin Spacey and House of Cards. Right. Okay. It's such, sort of pantomimic almost. It's such a fucking showy performance. And it's just... I'm just like, at what point do we stop fucking looking at close-ups of her face? It's just ridiculous. And the stuff that I loved about the early series was actually funny. Those voiceovers used to be funny when she, what was going on in her head. There's a great episode where like somebody, a new uh, Offglen knocks on the door and you just hear her head go, ah, fuck. And it's like that stuff is, is gone. And mm. now it's just misery, misery, misery. And everybody, I say everybody's doing a good job. I have my feelings about Elizabeth Moss now, but love and doubt. But I just don't know what it's supposed to be anymore. I'm not on board. I mean, I wasn't really on board in the third series. If it takes a, third, a lockdown to make you watch a series, um, it's not it's not great stuff. But interestingly, you mentioned to me about whether we were going to talk about the Emmys because the Emmys have really annoyed me this year for a number of reasons. Basically, the list for Best Supporting Actress in a series is just a list of women from The Handmaid's Tale. So it also feels like it's got some element of award bait about it. And I dislike that. But Yeah, yeah. I gave up on Series 3, like two episodes into Series 3. And I was just like, I don't understand why June's gone back. It's just 
misery porn. It's just what is what we watch it till she's literally just a womb in a box. I yeah. don't understand. And now it's quite telling, uh, as I have revealed in my version of the mail out when I did the Bush Telegram. Big fan of old grand designs. And I watched them on Channel 4. And Channel 4's got The Handmaid's Tale. And when it does the little sort of thumbnail of what's coming up. The Handmaid's Tale thumbnail is Elizabeth Moss. So I, I imagine as June in a red dress, flowing hair, looking all sexy. And I was like, if that isn't an indicator, it's lost its way. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. She's wearing plot armour. So everything that happens to her, you know she's going to survive it. So exactly. it, it just what it reminds me of now is is the Walking Dead, which started off as a really interesting idea. But when you're talking about like a lack of hope, you're just just putting people in danger that they will inevitably escape from, and it just yeah, I don't know how it's supposed to be interesting TV. Let's move on to something a lot lighter. Oh, also, just while I briefly say the the Emmy Awards. For goodness sake, much as I absolutely fucking adore Hamilton, the filming of a live stage play and the streaming of it on a paid-for channel for Disney should not entitle all of the actors in it to nominations for Emmys. It's, it's ludicrous. A bit like, um, it's a bit like uh, BBC getting loads of nods in the British Podcasting Awards or whatever, isn't right. it? It's just like you've got a yeah. fucking radio station guy. They've got a few well. radio yeah. channels, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Anyway... Um, let's talk about something much more cheery to end with. Series two, which again is like part two of series one of Lupin. I think you'll find it's Lupin. <laughs> Starring Omar Sy as the charming gentleman thief, Arsan Diop, as he is called in this. I mentioned before, it's very Sherlockish. if you're looking for uh, somewhere to... Uh, to put it in whether you'd like it. But it's also very French, so it means it's not overwrought like Sherlock is. It has this sort of central injustice that is tied to race and class, and that is where the emotion lies. And they don't go to that well too often. You're expected to understand that life is unfair if you're poor. Life is even unfairer if you're poor and black. And most of that is left unsaid. What they're really interested in is fun, just fun. And what happens is so much fun that the fact that it's utterly daft, it's got plot holes you could drive a bus through, it doesn't make any sense in some parts, doesn't actually matter because it doesn't take itself too seriously and therefore I don't need to take it too seriously. Mickey, I know you have another point to make about it though, so off you go. I do, I do. And it is a a serious point about something that is enormous fun and that is that Asan Diop, his dad, and one henchman aside, there are hardly any black characters in Lupin, not even incidental characters. That's just the men, with the exception of French-Algerian Lieutenant Bellachem. I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong, but we've all heard my French pronunciation. (laughs) There are no women of colour, and while, as Hannah's just said, Lupin, the show, does criticise racism and classism, make you do some work there, it's Paris is so starkly white. And I'm not just saying this, I'm not saying it's a virtue signal, although it is something we should be spotting and calling out because representation matters. But it also undermines the plot. If Assan's pretty much the only black man in Paris and he's six foot two, a model handsome, his whole master of disguise shtick feels even more implausible than it already does. So I'd, I'd really like them to address that in series three, which has, I think, already been commissioned. Also, Paris is not that white, is it? It's kind of a point, Jen. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's Paris is very white, which isn't, it isn't accurate. 
But like loads of it's not accurate. But yeah, it feels wrong. But nonetheless, it's a strange amount of fun to watch. Oh, it's glorious. And I know you mentioned Sherlock and I know also you're not a Sherlock fan. I've got a little soft spot for Sherlock. I don't think it's as lordworthy as it has been praised to be. But the thing about Lupin is it again comes from that sort of old source material, but it's just had much more fun with it, right? It wears it really lightly. It's yeah. modernised it really well. A couple of episodes in this back half are him and his best mate, who I think is called Benjamin. Is he called Benjamin? It's Ben, yeah. Yeah, who runs an antique shop and they are like, I mean, don't want to do spoilers, but they are sort of together for a fairly intensive part of it. It does something in building their relationship that you believe that they are best mates and they are solid by showing a couple of flashbacks, which is how Lupin works. It has flashbacks to how they met and they've been friends since they were children and all of that. And it doesn't feel the need for them to stop and have epic speeches about how much they love each other, which is what Sherlock is absolutely riddled with. And I absolutely hate it. Mm -hmm. I really hate it. And I think the idea is exactly the same. These two blokes would do anything for each other but one of them feels the need to spell it out and one of them doesn't. And yeah. I um, I enjoy the one that doesn't a whole lot more. Also, enormous props for an incredible running joke involving a brilliant dog called Jacques, yeah. which is a great name for a dog. Absolutely. Where's he gone, though? I hope, I hope they sort that out. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's interesting as well is obviously Asan Lupin is the gentleman thief. And it's the, the sort of angle for it in part two of the series is is he a gentleman when it comes to his relationships with with women and i think the jury's still out on that one will he use women to get what he wants he never uses violence he uses charm but is that charm necessarily gentlemanly in his dealings with the women in his life anybody else got anything else that they want to talk about television wise no i think we're done Terrific. Okay, well, we'll be back next month. You're welcome to tell me what you think of stuff. I am at that Dunleavy. Happy telly viewing. Ciao, Bella. <laughs> Great. Outside the box.